นโมทัสสะภะคะวะทูอะระหะทูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะทูอะระหะทูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะทูอะระหะทูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังฆังนะมะสัเรียกว่าอะไรก็ได้ก็ได้ก็ได้ก็ได้ก็ได้ก็ได้ก็ได้ก็ได้ก็ได้ก็ได้ก็ได้ก็ได้ก็ได้ก็ได้ก็ได้
repetitively listening to Dhamma talks, repetition has its place because we don't always get it first time. It would encourage repetition, encourage monks memorising the discourses and reciting them and listening to them and encourage repetitive reflections because it's relative to the mind state we're in at the time, whether we get it or not. Yeah. Like on a, this occasion of the Buddha giving the first discourse, not everybody got it. Kandanyo Bhikkhu got it. Yeah. Yeah. He was the first to get it. Yeah. So engaging together, reaffirming that we're all in this, supporting each other on this journey and thankfully we have opportunities where we can recite together discuss together listen together and hopefully we will little by little get it, get the message It was an occasion when I was sitting with Ajahn Chah at his kuti and, and uh, a very elderly woman had came to say goodbye to him. She'd been staying in the nuns' community there and she just wanted to pay her respects and take leave from Ajahn Chah. And, and uh, he used the occasion to give a, a really beautiful, short, you know, 15-minute uh, summary of the teachings, the path of practice, and, by way of encouraging her. Yeah. And at the end of the talk, he, he made this comment. He said, yeah, I really want you to understand this. Don't go and die before you get this. In fact, the expression he used was, die before you die. Mm. A similar expression and the word for dying in Thai is the same word, die. And Thai said, die, gone, die. Don't die before you die, but die before you die. From from the perspective of everyday society, that sounds like an indelicate comment to pass to an elderly woman. But from the perspective of Dhamma, it's just straight speaking. Ajahn Chah was, he meant what he said. Don't die physically before you understand this. And understanding, he was dying in a different sort of a way the dying he was talking about was uh, dying out of being caught up in the momentum of me and my way this momentum of me and my way this current of craving uh, that we have to cross to get to the other shore uh, that so often we sink into and and drown into uh, currents of craving that causes so much trouble to die out of that to let go of that to be free from that is the death that Ajahn Chah was talking talking about it is possible of course as we all know it takes a lot of work nobody does it without making effort it takes a tremendous amount of effort First, to own up to the fact that we're caught up in this current of craving, 
of being somebody, you know, me and my way, and its many manifestations, how it shows up, and in terms of our attachment to preferences, we can entertain them for a very long time. And without even recognizing that we're caught up in them. Something happens, there's a relationship issue or or a health issue, a sickness issue, or a financial issue, or our meditation just crashes. However it manifests, we are confronted with this feeling of I'm not getting my way. This is not what I want. Uh, if you're deeply obstructed, mm. well, that's the time to remember these teachings. Uh, this current of craving, this me and my way, uh, is not the end of the story. You know, the Buddha and the great enlightened beings crossed the flood, as they called it, uh, and were free from being caught up in this current. Mm-hmm. But how do we do that? How do we find this freedom? And that's, well, that's the talk Ajahn Chah gave on that occasion, and that beautiful discourse, and talking about how to cultivate the right quality of attention so that we learn to see when we're doing the clinging and creating the suffering. It takes a lot of skill, though, to see that. Somebody recently asked me, now how, do, how do I get out of the feeling of, like, I always have to be striving in my practice. I've always got to be striving, making this special kind of effort. Otherwise, I'm not doing anything. How do I get out of this? That's a real question. But that's... That's a good question. That's a great question. That's a really appropriate question. Yeah. What's a pity is that sometimes our minds are so fast that we bypass the relevance of that question and try to come up with a conceptual answer. Mm. Yeah. The first thing to do with that question is to trace it back to its source and recognize that we really want to be free from suffering. Yeah. Sometimes we Buddhists get so caught up in imagining the goal of freedom that we reject wanting, we demonize wanting. But wanting is natural. Our ignorant relationship to wanting is a problem. But we need to use wanting. Wanting to be free from suffering is really important. Wanting to be free from excessive exuberance, from excessive striving or whatever the excess or the experience of limitation that we suffer from, however it's manifesting, wanting to be free from it is important. So really, to feel, I want to get free, I want to take responsibility for this. And to fully acknowledge that this matters. Because that's the other thing, We, we readily... Uh, find identity, security up in our heads, our conceptual world. And so we imagine how we might be free from 
excessive striving or whatever the uh, experience of limitation is. We imagine that. Yeah. Then we don't, we don't feel yeah, what's going on in our heads. Yeah. So we've got to come back down to our hearts and to our bodies and really feel the consequence of being caught up. Yeah. Mindfulness of suffering doesn't mean you know, just thinking about the fact that we're suffering or translating the word dukkha fascinating word dukkha is and, and the, the etymology of that word and how we could translate it into unsatisfactoriness or stress or frustration or suffering or arguing about what's the best translation of dukkha none of that is the point the point is to feel the experience of limitation the experience of limited being and to know that we want to be free from it. So that question, how can we be free from excess of striving, yeah, yeah, to really register how important it is that we do get free. It's really important not to be just speculating about how we can be more acceptable or more successful in our practice. I really know the suffering. I really know that suffering and be interested in that. That's the Dhamma Chakra Sutta. All, that, all those words there are pointing to directing our attention towards the experience of suffering. Once again, because we're so readily identified in our thinking mind that we just imagine what's going on. Mm. But the experience of suffering is not the concept. Mm. We had a young fellow come to visit some time ago, I think he was from Iceland, and, and in the course of the conversation that we were having, he said that he came here because he was looking for a death experience. And initially I was a little unprepared for that. That's not what most people say when they come to the monastery. But if I understood what he was saying correctly, what he was talking about was what we're talking about here. You know, he intuited that there is that possibility of being confronted with what we're doing that creates the suffering, really taking responsibility really taking responsibility for what we're doing that is creating the suffering in the moment, letting go of the thinking, coming into the body. And I suspect what he was looking for was a tangible, a hint of the experience of having the ground pulled from under him. We sure ourselves up with attachment to me and my way and we think we've got it together but over and over again we get tripped up. Uh, he wanted to be consciously tripped up. He wanted to have a taste of the being able to die out of the experience of somebody who has it together hmm. for the sake of his practice. So these teachings that we're so fortunate to have are encouraging us to uh, become familiar with where is it that we are clinging to life and avoiding death. 
in other words, clinging to delusion and creating obstacles, where and when and how are we doing that? We're getting really interested in that. Getting interested in developing samadhi and and the stages of insight, that if that appeals to you, fine. Yeah. But if you find that boring, which I do, yeah. you get interested in the reality of suffering. Where is it? And what is it that I'm doing that resists reality and creates the experience of suffering? Yeah. And can I receive that without judgment? Can I feel really challenged, really heartbroken, but not collapse into some resistance. Where we resist suffering, we compound suffering. Where we resist reality, we create suffering. Mm. Our effort is to recognize it and is to open up to it. Mm. Face it. Get to know it. Really get to know ourselves in that place where we feel like we can't handle it anymore. Not to turn away from it. Not to collapse into it. Two extremes of indulging and running away. The middle way, facing it. Can feel, as I was saying, intensely challenging. But if we get interested in it, we become more adept at it, skilled at it. Mm. And one of the senior monks in our community was telling me how when he first started giving Dhamma talks, the thing that really troubled him wasn't getting started. He was somebody who, who seemed to feel okay getting started giving the talk. But it was when the lay people looked like they weren't interested anymore in what he was saying. It really troubled him when people got bored with what he was talking about. So he made a practice of it. I must say I was a little surprised when I heard him explain how he he talked to the point where everybody looked restless and bored and fed up and then kept talking and kept talking and kept talking and became very skilled at giving very boring Dhamma talks, which, if I can avoid having to be present for, I don't mind. Personally, I'm not at all supportive of using the uh, faith of the uh, the lay community in that way, but it is an example of, of somebody's daring approach to confronting their attachment to being praised and appreciated. He really did not like people finding him boring. Or perhaps it's winning. Sometimes, certainly as children, it's part of growing up to learn to succeed and and winning has its place. But if we become attached to always having to win to be number one, then we can't stand criticism. We really don't like being criticised about anything. We get really unduly uh, unsettled because somebody criticises us. 
Well, that's because we're vulnerable at that point. So what do we do? We turn around and look at it and say, welcome. If we resist it, we compound it. The degree to which we resist the suffering that we're creating there is basically, it's like closing the book and refusing to read the instructions. You know, this is the teaching. This feeling where I meet myself full of resistance, that's the Dhamma teaching. So we bow to that, we welcome that. We learn to lose. In practice, it's nothing like what goes on in the world where in the office you're always trying to be the one who's keeping the conversation going and cracking the jokes and playing one-upmanship. But in terms of Dhamma, you want to learn to lose. Lose the argument. Look like an idiot. And don't try and cover it up. And that's dying before we die. Mm. That's the real deal. That's the real practice. Mm. Developing peaceful states of mind, practicing loving kindness. That's like having a good massage. It can be very agreeable and get you into a good state. But it's not the work. You know, occasionally you might have a good massage and you know, learn to relax more deeply. It might feel very agreeable. Yeah. But the work is where we meet ourselves in our limitation and we bow into it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you remember that story of when Wat Nana Chant was first beginning and Ajahn Sumato had gone to visit Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Chah was asking, how's it going? How's the new monastery going? And Ajahn Sumato said, oh, it's wonderful. Everybody's cooperating. Everything's running smoothly. Ajahn Chah, I won't do you any good. I'm going to send over some difficult monks. You don't sharpen the sword of wisdom without leaning into the grindstone. Yeah, and there's always a risk if you lean in too close you'll end up with bleeding knuckles yeah. and there's heat involved there's sparks involved yeah. the sword of wisdom doesn't become sharp without pressure but it's how we relate to that pressure do we receive it mindfully are we ready for it are our systems balanced yeah. That matters. Sometimes talking like this, people get overly enthusiastic and think, well, I've got to go and lean my sword of wisdom into the grindstone, but they they end up making a mess of it and hurting themselves. Mm -hmm. We need to know what we're doing, we need to be prepared, we need to be careful, and our systems need to be balanced. Psychological system, emotional system, nervous system, physical system, energy systems. Our systems need to be balanced. If we're balanced and centered and grounded and ready, then yes. When the time comes, we turn around and bow into this intolerable 
experience of limitation. I referred a few days ago to that Dhamma talk where Ajahn Chah was talking about in the talk called uh, In the Dead of Night. Ajahn Chah was talking about uh, addressing his fear of death. Mm. It was so intense at one period that he really did feel like he was going to die. The fear of death was racking his body and his mind, his heart. But in because he was, his systems were sufficiently prepared, he had the mindfulness, he had the stability, he had the readiness, he recognized that it was safe to make this daring effort and thought to himself, well, if I die in this situation, practicing, facing fear, that's all right. If I die doing something bad, that's not okay. But this is okay. So even his fear of death didn't turn into overwhelm. As we know, he realized great benefit from that ordeal. So getting the timing right, the kind of effort. But the principle is finding what works. Where are we limited? Where are we clinging? Where are we doing the suffering? And then how do we let go of the resistance? Another word Ajahn Chai used to use was surrender. Yom in Thai. He asked the question, Yom Lali Yom. Have you surrendered yet or not? Or, in other words, are you still committed to me in my way, still caught up in the current of craving, trying to get what you want, get praise, get appreciation, get understanding, get pleasure, get development, get progress? Or have you surrendered? Of course, as we would all know, we can't, we can't imitate the surrender. The surrender happens... The letting go happens when we've endured long enough and come to recognize what it is that we're doing that's creating the resistance to reality. And that's going to be different for all of us. Recently reading in Ajahn Tate's autobiography, he was uh, talking about his efforts in practice and uh, his discovery of what works and uh, and his beautiful way of sharing the benefit of his practice. Uh, but he was commenting on, in the time of the Buddha, there was a, a monk meditating on or contemplating a, a heron by a lake catching a fish and this captured the monk's attention in such a way that he held it until the deepest possible letting go happened and he realised complete arahantship and Ajahn Tate was pointing out that the, 
There's nothing in the traditional meditation manuals about meditating on a heron catching a fish, but it worked. So that's the point. Uh, what works? And so each of us, uh, being different, uh, have our own particular form of imbalance, our own particular characteristic way of clinging and creating suffering for ourselves. But, as I started off by saying, it's, it can be very affirming that we chant together, meet together, sit together, live together like this, uh, reminding each other that we're here to support each other in crossing the flood and being freed from this current of craving. And thank you very much for your attention. Andalayang Dhammakataya